I'll be reading Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 12, and you can find it on page 67 in the Old Testament. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is in between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they have departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you brought, for you brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all of the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you all of the land of Egypt. Of Egypt, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what, we are, for what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and fill you with bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked towards the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall, you shall fool your you shall, feel, you, shall, you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know what I, that I am the Lord of God. I will now be reading Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandment. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither of you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not have to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God.
How were you affected, I wonder, by the Great Kentucky Fried Chicken Crisis of February 2018? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you do, some of you don't. Okay, well, to bring you up to speed, KFC, and may God bless the Colonel's unique blend of 11 herbs and spices, decided to switch their delivery company from a specialist food transport company to DHL, well known to many of us for the little cards. They pop through our letterboxes telling us that they've tried and failed to deliver something. As you may have guessed by now, things didn't go quite according to plan, and KFC shops started running out of chicken, which, considering it's basically all they sell, meant that most of them had to close their doors. At the height of the drama, a couple of weeks ago, about two-thirds of the UK's KFC outlets were closed. Apparently, according to the Daily Mail, at least, panicked customers resorted to calling the police because they feared they might lose out on their daily bird. Forgive the pun. Well, so far, so ridiculous. However, if you happened to be one of the zero-hours contracted employees of a KFC franchise that was forced to close, things were rather less amusing. The gig economy of hand-to-mouth employment, exemplified by organisations such as Uber and Deliveroo, but also uh, found right across organisations like KFC franchises, means that if you don't work, you don't get paid. And an estimated 10% of the KFC workforce lost out on their expected earnings for that week, whilst many others were required to take their annual leave to cover the closure. It is very likely, given the demographic of your typical worker in a fast food restaurant, that people went hungry as a result of this fiasco. And it's in this context of tenuous employment and uncertain income that I want us to encounter our passage for this morning from the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. The daily reality for many people in our city and indeed for many of those who pass through the doors of this church is that the prayer for daily bread has an anxiety level to it that is easily lost on those of us who have enough resources in hand to feed ourselves for the foreseeable future. I think this is not easily a middle-class prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And for many of those in first-century Palestine, to whom Jesus first taught this prayer, uncertainty about their future ability to feed themselves was just part of day-by-day -day existence. It was only the rich and the wealthy and the powerful in Jewish society who had an assured future in terms of food supply. For everyone else, the only certainties were death and Roman taxes. There was no welfare state, there was no minimum wage, there was certainly no London living wage, there was no trades union movement, there were no standardised terms and conditions of employment. If you got ill, 
or you lost your job. The step from feeding your family to destitution was a startlingly small one. And it was to disciples facing uncertain futures that Jesus taught the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. There's there's an urgent simplicity to it when it's heard in a subsistence context. And I wonder if this is where its first challenge to us in all the complexities of our metropolitan lives might come from. We live in a society and a city of huge disparities of income and security. Some of us struggle not to eat too much, while others of us struggle to know where our next meal is coming from. Some of us struggle to know how to wisely invest our resources, rightly asking those ethical questions of our bankers and our pension funds, whilst others don't have enough income even for today's needs, let alone the needs of an imagined future retirement. So what does the stark simplicity of a prayer for daily bread say to a city where investment banks and food banks sit side by side? Well, to me, it says that something has gone badly wrong. But first, the middle-class caveat. I don't actually think there's anything inherently wrong with having enough resources in hand for the future as well as for today. It seems prudent to me that we should, if we are able to, plan for our retirements and ensure the future well-being of our loved ones. The honest and earnest prayer for the needs of today does not negate the honest and earnest planning for the needs of tomorrow. However, it might challenge those of us who are in a position to make those sorts of plans to consider whether we have become guilty of the sin of excess. And it might call us to review once again our own priorities. And it might ask us to ensure that we don't neglect the needs of those who are less well-off than we are. But beyond the individual challenge which I hear very strongly. I wonder if the simplicity of the prayer for daily bread might ask more wide-ranging questions of the attitudes and practices which drive so much of the economics that we encounter in our world around us. And here for a moment I want us to consider the current dominant economic system known as global capitalism. The impact of the internet-driven information revolution on the centuries-old system of capitalism has been profound. And the basis on which international trade occurs has shifted quite dramatically over the last 20 years or so. We used to have a world economy with countries linked by trade agreements, such as the one we may or may not have with Europe once uh, Brexit has happened. However, I have a suspicion that all of the wrangling over trade and customs unions might be a little bit like shutting the door once the horse has bolted, because nations are now linked financially at far more organic levels than just 
the formalized trade agreements. I see in the news this morning that there's now a standoff between Europe and the States on precisely this issue. President Trump wants to tax the import of foreign cars and Europe is threatening to tax Levi jeans and bourbon whiskey, I see, in response. And yes, I get that kind of wrangling, but actually I think there's a whole lot of other financial transactions taking place that kind of cut through that. As I say, we're now linked to more organic levels. So there is a transnationalism of production processes, which trade agreements won't unpick. There is an internationalization of the finance markets that is pretty set and not likely to be changed dramatically by agreements at a national and international level. And also, the global accumulation of capital has shifted wealth around the world and continues to do so in ways that are almost entirely unregulated. Even so-called closed countries are unable to opt out fully, and no nation now can exist immune from the social, political, and cultural impacts of global capitalism. And this creates a largely unregulated context for global inequality, domination, and exploitation. The upshot of which is that if you want to solve hunger or poverty in one nation, you immediately find yourself doing battle with global powers of oppression that will always act in the self-interests of the global elite who have constructed them to the disadvantage of the global poor. This is one of the reasons it is so hard to deal with poverty at an international level. And world, worldwide, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Last year, the nine richest men in the world held more wealth than the poorest four billion people in the world. And most of those nine richest men are rich because they own companies that control or subvert international trade. The richest person in the world last year, do you know who it is? Do you know who's topping the international rich list at the moment? Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, who, of course, are well known for their excellent employment practices and scrupulous corporate tax payments. These systems that we have created are highly sophisticated in their mechanisms. They are international in their scope and reach. They are uncontrollable by trade agreements but they are surprisingly simple in their objectives. These systems that we have created exist to make money, to acquire wealth, to generate profit. And because one person's profit is always another person's loss, and I would take issue with those who say there is cost-free profit, these systems therefore also exist to impoverish, exploit, and dominate. Unchecked and unchallenged global capitalism is causing vast suffering across the world and is colluding in ecological destruction on an unprecedented scale. So where, we might ask, will the challenge come from? Well, I want to suggest that it's here, in our little verse from the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you know the parable of the fisherman? I'd heard it before, so it's not original to me. I looked it up. 
The rich industrialist, so the parable goes, was horrified to find the fisherman lying lazily beside his boat, smoking a pipe. Why aren't you out fishing, said the industrialist. Because, said the fisherman, I've caught enough fish for today. Why don't you catch some more, said the industrialist. What would I do with it, replied the fisherman. You could earn more money, was the reply. With that, you could have a motor fixed to your boat to replace the oars, and you could go into deeper waters, and you could catch more fish. Then you would have enough money to buy nylon nets, and these would bring you more fish and more money. Soon you would have enough money to own two boats, maybe even a fleet of boats. Then you would be a rich man like me. What would I do then? asked the fisherman. Then came the reply, you could really enjoy life. And what, said the fisherman, do you think I am doing right now? The challenge is clear. What if we focus not on what we could acquire, but simply on what we need? And that might mean enough for today and for tomorrow and for retirement, but there comes a point, doesn't there? What if we were to decide, personally and communally, that enough is just that? Enough. Well, firstly, it might enable us to release resources for others. But it would also begin to release us from the continual pressure to acquire wealth and status and success. If we ask for and receive our daily bread, then we have enough for today. This was the lesson the Israelites had to learn in the story of the manna in the wilderness, which is clearly in the background to the words in Jesus' prayer, which is why we had Nikwith reading it for us earlier. If when they were collecting the manna that had fallen onto the desert floor, if when they were collecting it, they collected too much and tried to keep more than they needed, it simply went rotten by the next day. Except on the sixth day, when they had to collect enough for two days so they could rest from their labour on the seventh day. Well, I've read lots of things about the manor over the years, and people have got themselves tied up in all sorts of knots trying to work out what this blessed thing was. And I would want to say, what if we don't worry about coming up with some kind of explanation for it, but what if we simply take this ancient story at face value as a parable of idealised economics. Here we have a story, very much like the parable of the fisherman, which speaks of simple living, where enough is enough, where unnecessary accumulation is pointless, where rest is sanctified, planning for the seventh day is important, and where people can be content and stop complaining about their lot in life because they simply have enough. The main lesson the Israelites had to learn in the wilderness was to stop complaining. How do we do with that, I wonder? What would it be like for us to just realize that we can stop complaining and stop worrying? To learn that enough is sometimes enough. 
Of course, the question of how much is enough is always going to rear its head and be open to interpretation and, dare I say it, abuse. The teaching you will meet in some churches, often known as the prosperity gospel, says that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. One of its most well-known proponents, the preposterously prosperous pastor Benny Hinn, has been in the news again this week, having apparently decided that even for someone whose whole career has been built around prosperity, sometimes enough is enough. In an interview this week reflecting on the ministry of Billy Graham, Hinn acknowledged that he has been guilty of taking prosperity teaching a bit beyond what the Bible teaches which may possibly be the understatement of the century, if you know anything about Benny Hinn. Anyway, he's apparently now given up his private jet, poor chap. (laughs) But I do think the question of what we think we're asking for when we pray for our daily bread is a really important one. Is it just a prayer for food for today? Or is it also subsumed within the metaphor of daily bread, a prayer for shelter and warmth and security and love and self-determination and mobility, a car, a private jet? Where do we draw the line? Studies have shown that there comes a point, and it is lower than you might think, beyond which additional wealth does not lead to additional happiness. I was reading an article in The Independent from last year, looking at, uh, in, a, in a British context, they did happiness questionnaires of people at different income levels, and it does seem that up to a certain point, having more money does have a correlation with an increased level of happiness. And I get that. You know, if if you don't know where your food is coming from, you don't know how you're going to afford your rent, and you you have no choices in life because you have no money, that can, it doesn't always, but it can correlate with stress and unhappiness. But the point at which the two cross over isn't as high as you might think. It's within the realms of what many people find quite achievable in life, And yet we still feel that we have to keep on accumulating well beyond that point. There is a pressure in society for us as individuals to seek to get ever richer. And the study shows that that does not necessarily mean you will be happier. The temptation to excess is ever before us. Just as it was before Jesus in his experience in the wilderness. Jesus did not wake up every morning of his 40-day Lenten fast in the desert to find fresh manna waiting for him. He could have clicked his fingers and made that happen, so the story goes, but he didn't. He starved in the wilderness. And then he was tempted to use his divine power to command stones to become bread for him to eat. And in his reply to the tempter, he quoted words from Deuteronomy originally written to reflect on this Israelite experience of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness being sustained by manna. The passage Jesus quotes tells us that the lesson of the daily manna from heaven is not that God meets all your needs and invites you to a life of luxury. 
rather the lesson of Deuteronomy reflecting on the wilderness experience of the Israelites is that abundant life is not found in the abundance of a person's possessions or even in the abundance of the food they consume, but in obedience to every word that comes from the mouth of God. The discipline of praying each day for daily bread is not some ritual to get God to give us what we think we need. As I said a couple of weeks ago, that kind of prayer has more in common with magical incantations than it does the articulations of the longings of a humble heart. No, the prayer for daily bread is offered for the same reasons that the Israelites gathered manna, to learn obedience to God, who guides us into works of goodness and humility and charity. The prayer for daily bread, you see, is not about me or even about us, lest we think that God especially favours us by answering our cry for food. Rather, it's a prayer that takes us into solidarity with those who lack, which drives us to action, to see the hungry fed, the poor raised up, and the impoverished released from the snares of debt. It's a prayer that takes us into good works of transformative charity. It certainly did for the early Christians, as the book of James makes clear. James chapter 2, If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Similarly, in the book of Acts, we read... Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And I wonder in our complex, interconnected, globalised, capitalist world, what such good works might look like for us. It might look like some of the work we do here on a Sunday lunchtime, or on a Tuesday evening, or at other points in the week, where we quite literally, offer food to people who want some food. I said a couple of weeks ago that we are called as God's adopted children to mirror his likeness through doing good works. And I wonder what it would be like if our commitment to good works also led us to a commitment to good work, where we become advocates for good employment practices, where we become involved in seeing people being paid a fair living wage, receiving paid holidays, sickness benefits, maternity cover. What if we chose to do battle with the hand-to-mouth gig economy that leaves people vulnerable to failed deliveries of chicken? What would it look like for our prayer for daily bread to include a commitment to alleviating food poverty? I find myself increasingly drawn to the idea of a universal basic income in place of the current cruelties of our social security system, which would mean that every single individual would get a basic income sufficient to live with dignity, unconditionally, even when they're not working. The hungry in our city are not primarily those we see begging on the streets. They may be the most visible, and they have some very real needs. 
But, as we have heard recently here at Bloomsbury, there are a variety of places you can go for your daily bread if you are street homeless. There is good provision there. It's not perfect, but it's good. The vast majority of those people who are malnourished in London are living in flats in blocks like the tragic Grenfell Tower, and they include children, and they include the elderly, and they include parents skipping their own meals so that their children can eat. And what, I wonder, does a prayer for daily bread mean to them? And how might we become part of the answer to that prayer? And so we get involved in things like London Citizens, the originators of the Living Wage Campaign, currently building a good work campaign, looking at fair employment practices and trying to get companies to adopt policies that say they will employ people well. And we can lend our voice and our weight to that kind of stuff as well as part of our praying. Give us this day our daily bread. And if you want to know more about that, come and talk to me. But now we're going to come to the communion table. And as we do so, I think all of the various themes I've been holding before us coalesce around the bread that is before us today. The first Lord's Supper was a celebration of a Passover meal. The story of the manna was there before the disciples that evening in the upper room. And Jesus, while they were eating, took a loaf of bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat this, it is my body. And elsewhere in John's Gospel, we read that Jesus described himself as the bread of life, saying that whoever comes to him will never be hungry. And in Paul's story of the Lord's Supper in his letter to the Corinthians, he recalls Jesus as saying, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the meal of sharing. It is the meal of accountability. It is the meal of sacrifice, the meal of abundance, the meal of life. And it is as we share this bread that we will find the answer to our prayer for daily bread taking shape in our lives and in our midst. It's as we share this bread that we discover together what it is to be obedient to every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's as we eat bread together that we find ourselves motivated to good works in our world to share with those who have less than we do, to lift up those who are weighed down by poverty, and to offer all that we have to the service of the one who calls us to newness of life. And it's no coincidence that once we have celebrated by sharing bread and wine, we'll pass round the plates and ask for money. And it's no coincidence that at our communion services, the cash offering that you will put into those plates will go into the hardship fund of this church, which the ministers can use for the direct alleviation of needs that walk in through our doors, day by day, week by week, month by month. And of course, because we live in a complex, globalised world, not all of us put cash in the plates on a Sunday. Some of us pay by standing order with uh, nice tax-efficient gift aid forms. And if that's what you do, and you want to designate part of your standing order for the hardship fund, please increase your standing order by that amount and tell the treasurer that's what you'd like to do. But in any case, the money we give 
for the alleviation of hardship is just an expression, just one of the many expressions of who we are when we gather around this table to break bread, to eat together, and to pray once again the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Amen. God of grace, you have called us to be your disciple people and gathered us to your table. Here we have tasted the bread of heaven and shared the new wine of your kingdom. Empower us by your spirit that we may be a gospel people, good news for all the world. As we have shared the richness of your table, we cannot forget the rawness of the earth. We cannot take bread and forget those who are hungry. Your world is one world, and we are stewards of its nourishment. Lord, put our prosperity at the service of your poor. We cannot take wine and forget those who are thirsty. The ground and the rootless, the earth and its weary people crying out for justice. Lord, put our fullness at the service of the empty. We cannot hear your words of peace and promise and forget the world at war or, if not at war, preparing for it. Show us quickly, Lord, how to turn weapons into welcome signs and the lust for power into a desire for peace. And we cannot celebrate the feast of your family and forget our divisions. But we are one in spirit but not in fact, and history and hurt still dismember us. Lord, heal your church in all its brokenness. And we cannot receive gift and forget those who receive nothing. As we have received, so teach us to give. As we have received freely, teach us to live without hoarding. As we have met grace, grant that we will live gracefully. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.